When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 140, Magnificent and Insufferable. Let me just take you back a few years to the conquest of Cilicia in 965. For that major campaign, Nicephorus decided that he needed his senior generals by his side. So he called upon his brother Leo and his nephew John Zimiskis. Both men acquitted themselves well and journeyed back to the capital to celebrate. Once there, though, Zimiskis was stripped of the rank of domestic of the East, he was dismissed from public life, and sent to live with some allies of the Phocas family in Anatolia, essentially under house arrest. We don't know why this was done. Clearly, Zimiskis hadn't committed an actual offence. He wasn't executed or imprisoned on a far-off island. But it seems that the emperor had become suspicious of him. Had he disobeyed orders? Were there whispers of a coup? Or was it something more petty? Was the charismatic John a threat to Nicephorus's reputation. Remember that Phocas was a usurper. The people had rallied to him because of his military triumphs, and the regime had doubled down on this, suggesting that only the bringer of victory could bring victory. If John was out there conquering just as easily, then it would undermine the emperor's propaganda. Not to mention that the army was a powerful tool and to leave it in the hands of a rival, could prove fatal. So maybe this wasn't a case of the green-eyed monster Nicephorus. Perhaps it was shrewd political calculation. Better to leave the army with only one master, and make it clear that victory depended on him. This theory is supported by the events of last episode, when Michael Vortzis captured Antioch, the emperor sacked him. And that's why John's replacement in Cilicia was not an independent, charismatic type. It was Petros, a loyal focus retainer and a eunuch, someone who could never approach the throne. 
So, Zimmer's Keys sat in comfortable obscurity for four years. John was an ambitious and daring man. There was little chance that he would quietly accept his fate. And with Nicephorus's popularity taking a sharp nosedive, men in high places began to ponder if there might be an alternative to this dour military dictatorship. One of those men was a fellow high-ranking officeholder, Basil Le Capinos. The youngest son of the former emperor Romanus had been rewarded well in the wake of Nicephorus's rise to power. He was restored to his former position in the palace and became the liaison to the senate, a very influential role putting him in daily contact with the empire's well-to-do citizens. However, despite his prominent place in the new regime, Basil found himself unable to influence policy as he would wish. The Focas family had clear ideas on how the government should be run, and though they valued the eunuch's advice, they did not always follow it. It seems this relationship became frostier as the years went by, and Basil, who had survived two coups already, began to wonder if a third might deliver him the power he craved. It so happened that Basil and John were friends. You may recall that in 958 they campaigned together, capturing the city of Samosata and sharing the credit. However, the two men kept in touch, a deal was struck, and during the winter of 969, Zimiskis either escaped or was released from his house arrest and made his way across Anatolia, ready to take an almighty gamble. Basil would be responsible for arrangements inside the palace, but John would need help to get there. Le Capinos found willing conspirators amongst the pool of disgruntled army officers. Chief amongst them was Michael Vortzis. These men made their way to Chalcedon, just across the Bosphorus, they linked up with Zemiskis in early December and hired some sailors who knew the waters well. On the night of December the 10th, they made their move. The evening was dark and foreboding, which is what they wanted. There was snow in the air as they set sail, with no lights, edging slowly across the waters. Their plan was to reach the new palace walls, the ones which Nicephorus had built, to better protect him from the people. These stretched all the way down to the sea, not far from the emperor's private harbour. John and his comrades rowed as quietly as they could along the sea walls until they reached the new construction. There, Zimiskis let out a low whistle, the signal was heard by the guardsmen who were in Basil's pay. They lowered a large basket down the walls, and one by one they hauled the conspirators up onto the battlements. From there, they swiftly made their way inside the palace, drew their swords, and headed 
for the Emperor's bedchamber. Flinging open the door, they were astonished to find the bed empty. Frantically searching, the cabal began to panic. Someone had betrayed them. Nicephorus knew they were coming and was waiting with his guards downstairs. But another palace eunuch appeared, also in Basil's pay, and led them down the corridor. Phocas, the man who envied the ascetic life, often stayed up late in prayer. He'd had a special room constructed adjoining the church of the Pharos just for this purpose. But sleep comes to us all. As the assassins entered the room, there lay Nicephorus asleep on the floor. He was wrapped in the bearskin which his uncle, St. Michael Maleinos, had worn on the mountainside. They fell on him and ran him through with their swords. Nicephorus Phocas was 57 years old and had ruled the empire for just six years. The work of the conspirators was only half done. The commotion now roused the imperial bodyguards, who came running, ready to defend their master. As they banged on the doors, Zimiskis gave the order for his comrades to cut off Nicephorus's head. This grim deed done, John took the dripping appendage and held it up to the window where the guards could see it. Their protestations ceased, and they began to look at one another. They were there to do their duty and protect the emperor, but if he was already dead, then what do they do now? Was there already a new power amongst them, and if so, did they really want to stand against it? While the guards absorbed the shock, Basil appeared. Opening all the right doors, he ushered John to the throne room where he donned the imperial costume. He summoned those who would be happy to see him, and they acclaimed him emperor on the spot. A few hours later, the rest of the palace followed suit, accepting the change of regime in order to preserve themselves. Meanwhile, Basil, who had been planning for this, sent heralds out across the capital to announce that John was the new Vasilefs, alongside the two Macedonian princes, of course. The heralds also announced that there was now a curfew in place and that looting would be severely punished. These actions neutralized the people. In times of crisis, many would rush down to the Messi, hoping to take part in political action. But this was a fait accompli. The old emperor was dead, the new one was in place, and if you protest, there are soldiers standing ready. The coup was born, of course, because of the underlying assumption that the people would not rally to the aid of the Focus family. And between their unpopularity and these swift measures, the populace remained calm. Fear that no one would support him clearly gripped Leo Focus. Nicephorus's brother was the only man capable of leading a counterpunch. We don't know exactly where he was that night, but once he heard the news, he and his son, also named Nicephorus, fled for the Hagia Sophia, where they begged 
for sanctuary. So it was that by the morning of December the 11th, 969, the Byzantines had themselves a new emperor, John the First. We have a lot to unpack here. Let's go back to the fallen emperor. Nicephorus Phocas was clearly one of the great generals of Roman history, certainly top three of the Byzantine era. In his book, Eric Magir summed him up brilliantly. By drilling his soldiers relentlessly and submitting them to the strict physical and spiritual discipline by which he lived, he strove to make his soldiers function as an irresistible war machine. The many victories they won and the terror they inspired were due to his ability to shape them into the effective instrument of his own will. Though he only reigned for six years, he was in charge of the military for fourteen, and in that time his achievements are hugely impressive. He transformed the army from capable into crushing. He equipped them to fight and win on Arab soil, and never lost a battle. He conquered more land than anyone since Justinian, and that prestige brought friend and foe into line with Byzantine interests. The cherry on top is that he insisted that his tactics be written down for the benefit of future generations. That conscientiousness and attention to detail are what made him so good. The question remains as to how far Nicephorus would have kept going. Propaganda on both sides see further conquest as his goal, but that may not be the case. As we'll explore during John's reign and the the end-of-the-century-style episodes which follow, the Byzantines had turned their borders inside out. Once they reached Antioch, they could now confidently face the former caliphate from a position of strength. To seriously push on and attempt to conquer more land may have been a foolish endeavour, and Nicephorus was no fool. Was he, though, a bad emperor? He did alienate almost every segment of Byzantine society, and he was overthrown. I often think that the succession tells you a lot about an emperor and those who wind up murdered usually made big mistakes along the way. This is a difficult case. It's probably the most daring conspiracy in Byzantine history. Should Nicephorus be forgiven for failing to see it coming? I'm sympathetic to focus. I don't think he deserved the fate he got, but I think when your enemies are confident that the people will be glad to see the back of you, then you failed somewhere. Nicephorus struggled to control public opinion, and he struggled to control his palace, and those are big problems. I'm sure many listeners will regard his military achievements as more than enough to rank him amongst the very best emperors. But I'd ask you to consider a figure like Romanus Lecapinos, an unknown when he came to power, who was able to rule for 20 years. He maintained the loyalty of his senior general and achieved great military feats while keeping the peace at home. 
who was the better emperor? Just something to think about. As news filtered out of Nicephorus's demise, there was celebration in Muslim lands, and mourning in some quarters of Byzantium. Poems and inscriptions survive from those who saw Nicephorus as a hero. Even his enemies could not deny that he had been an irresistible force in war. Despite Phocas's unpopularity in the capital, and despite the cold-blooded nature of the murder, Zimis Keys did not attempt to overtly blacken Nicephorus's name. With the curfew in place, he ordered that his uncle's body should be taken to the imperial mausoleum in the Church of the Holy Apostles and buried quietly. John Julius Norwich always has a nice turn of phrase and says, It was an honourable resting place, but Nicephorus Phocas, the white death of the Saracens, hero of Syria and Crete, saintly and hideous, magnificent and insufferable, had deserved a better end. Ioannis Zimiskis was born around 925. His mother was Nicephorus's sister. His father was the son of Theophilus Corcuas, the brother of John Corcuas, the great general. So despite his obvious links to the Focards, John could easily be known to us as John Corcuas. In other words, he had his own military pedigree to call upon, and that may have influenced some of his daring military exploits as he tried to live up to the family reputation. Zimiskis was a nickname. Scholars debate whether this was a place, a term for red boots, or whether it meant short stature. The latter is possible, as John is described as short, but handsome, fair-haired, and with strong arms and broad shoulders. John was quite a contrast to his uncle, Nicephorus. Phocas seemed old and grizzled, where John was pleasing on the eye. Phocas was stern and regimented, where John charmed and seized the day. The descriptions of Nicephorus's battles are likened to clockwork. John's engagements are called reckless and bold. Remember that he barely escaped with his life from one encounter with Sefadola. John was successful, though. He was the second most famous general of his day, and that military reputation is what made him a plausible candidate to be emperor. The Mountain of Blood incident also shows us that Zimiskis was not a squeamish man. But why did he turn on his uncle? Yes, he was living in confinement, but it was a cosy prison. Clearly, Nicephorus didn't mean to harm him. If he'd been patient, perhaps he'd have been rehabilitated in time. But familial relationships are complicated. 
Just because the magnate clans intermarried did not mean they were always intimate. The Korkuas family had dominated the eastern military commands before the Fokads took over, so naturally there was competition between the two. And John had married Maria of the Skliros family, another eastern magnate clan who were competitive with the Fokads. So as you can see, despite Nicephorus being his uncle, John had plenty of reasons to regard him as a rival, as well as an ally. Maria had died by this point, and some listeners may be wondering why I haven't mentioned the Empress Theophano yet. A rumour had it that the Empress and John were having an affair, and that it was she who arranged for his release and participated in the conspiracy against her husband Nicephorus. Just to remind you, Theophano was a young beauty who caught the eye of the young emperor, Romanus II. She was not from a well-born family, but he married her anyway, and she bore him three children, including the two imperial princes, Basil and Constantine. When Romanus died, she married Nicephorus in order to maintain her own position and that of her children. To jump ahead slightly, John will soon offer her up as a sacrifice, essentially blaming her for the murder of Nicephorus, and she will be shipped off into exile. John had committed murder. There was no easy way for the ecclesiastical establishment to look the other way particularly not the patriarch Polyuctus, who was a firm advocate of church power. The archbishop wasn't going to lose his job over this, though, so he demanded a list of concessions from Zimiskis in order to bless his unholy coronation. We'll get to the rest of the conditions next time, but one of them was that some scapegoats must be punished, and Theophano was offered up as one of them. Obviously, the murder of Nicephorus was the story of its time. It had everything. It was like the JFK assassination. Theories circulated for years about who knew what and who did what to who. When Theophano was blamed for playing a part in the plot, it was readily believed. Beautiful empresses always stir up gossip, and the man on the street may not have realised how distant an imperial couple might actually be. They had separate quarters in the palace, and so it was entirely possible that Nicephorus and Theophano never slept together, literally or figuratively. But when a palace coup happens, the popular imagination assumes that the emperor's wife must have been by his side and played some role. When Theophano married Nicephorus, the story circulated that the middle-aged general had fallen for her like a schoolboy. Again, an easy story to believe when you saw the glamorous empress standing next to the unattractive Nicephorus. But we have no evidence to back that up. Then comes the rise of handsome, charismatic John Zimiskis, and again the story goes that he seduced the empress, that she helped him kill Nicephorus, but was then spurned by her lover. John discarded her once he'd got the prize he really wanted. 
This tale was widely believed. We actually have surviving poetry on the subject. But again, there is little evidence for it. The histories where it's reported come much later, once the rumours had grown and mutated, and they have obvious bias in varying attempts to besmirch Nicephorus, John, and Basil II in turn. Antony Caldellis thinks the wisest course is to believe none of it. Banishing Theophano from the palace served the interests of John and Basil Le Capinos. She was an ideal scapegoat, and it removed her influence from the young princes who were now eleven and nine, respectively. So what about the assassination itself? There are obvious similarities with Michael of Amorium murdering Leo V. But this was more. The spurned subordinate, the moonless boat ride, the scaling of the walls, the emperor at prayer, the decapitation, the adultery. This really did have everything. It was glamorized and romanticized at the time and in the centuries which followed. The room where Nicephorus was murdered was known from then on as Focus's chamber. And a new guard was posted in the palace forever to keep an eye on the wall which John had scaled. Two hundred years later, a source refers to that guard post still being in place and knowing why it was there. Antony Caldellis makes the comment that the daring of the deed somehow managed to mask the crass indecency of it. It was, after all, a naked power grab, a deeply ungrateful and brutal act. And yet, John was accepted as emperor, and discussion turned to just how he'd pulled it off, rather than what a despicable deed it was. But that, it seems, is another contrast between John and Nicephorus. Where Phocas struggled to be general and emperor, Zimisces would prove to be an excellent politician. Next time, we'll see how he managed to spin his way from Vicious to Vasilefs in no time at all. There may be no episode next week, but I'm recording another interview tomorrow, more details soon, and my discussion with Zach Twamley is live on the When Diplomacy Fails feed. Go check it out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.